Welcome back, horror hands, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. I'm Mike Ghostman Pickle. And I'm James Rivera. Uh, we have a lot to discuss this week. We uh, we're gonna we have a lot of news to discuss this week. A lot of lots been going on, lots been going down in the world of horror. Yeah, and we're we're a, a week behind, so the news stories are gonna be a little stacked this week. But uh, Even we had to we take weren't. a week off last week. Uh, very busy with the TV show and the podcast and the movie going. So uh, we got our hands on the uh, rough cut of Pay Up, and we enjoyed it. And we finally got the project files, and we've watched it thoroughly and mapped our cuts and got everything ready. And now that we have the project files, we're ready to get at it this week and hopefully finish it by early next week and send it to the sound person. Yep. For our regular viewers, as you know, we have a TV series, a horror show on the American Horrors Channel. It's an app on Roku. We've been off for a few weeks to get some uh, business in order, to get some promotionals, and to get ready for season two. Uh, by the time this podcast airs, we will have already have been back on the air, though. On our variety show on the American Horrors Channel, it's it was a couple weeks hiatus for two reasons. To do marketing, uh, to concentrate on marketing, because we broke all the channel's records, so we want to market that out to all the horror publications. And we also wanted to extend the first season into July so we can finish the season with a big 4th of July special. So hopefully that'll be a big treat for you guys. Look out for that. Wait till you see what we, what we got coming up on this 4th of July special. We got a couple. We th- we'd like to think that it's... Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> you ready to get into it, Michael? Let's do this. We got two weeks worth of stories to get through. A bunch of them came out today. Horror Show News. Steven Spielberg writing and directing a horror series, After Dark, that you have to watch at night. Good old Rob Zombie's Three from Hell trailer drops this week. Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep trailer drops this week. Tim Burton's art exhibited in the U.S. for the first time in ten years. The Banana Splits movie will be rated R. Damn. (laughs) Bloomhouse is producing Black Christmas Remake. Coming in December already. Miramax is on the market, and Swamp Thing series canceled after only one episode. That is a lot of news. Yes, it is. We're going to get to it first with this Steven Spielberg business. Apparently, Steven Spielberg is going to be directing this horror series called After Dark. It has to be watched at night. So that means that once the night time passes, once the night hours pass, it becomes unavailable. So you can only watch it at that time. It's... A part of a new mobile-based streaming series called Quibi, which is short for Quick Bites. I'm not pretty excited based on all the details I've heard about this. Yeah, it's it's a new streaming network, but it's a mobile-friendly streaming network, which is only going to be played on phones for people on the go. I find this a little bit ironic. I don't know if it's ironic, considering that Steven Spielberg has been on a rampage lately. Yeah. against Netflix films and streaming films. And I understand some of his... Uh, I can understand where he's coming from to an extent where he wants to preserve the theatrical experience. But to be trashing Netflix movies, trying to block them from getting awards, and talking about how streaming is going to be the death of the cinematic experience, to go with the streaming service and then yeah. go even smaller with a show that you can only watch on your phone... Fucking boring, dude. I have. Yeah. I hate watching things on my phone. I know some people do. You are on the go. I'm not one of those people. I never watch anything on my phone. And because of that, I don't really have an interest in this. 
And it's only going to be what uh, these are going to be quick bites, so they're going to be like seven to ten minute short episodes that you have to watch on your phone. Yeah, it, and they become unavailable after that. Apparently, it's movie length, but it's broken up into little uh, seven to ten minute bite size episodes, which is what this whole network is going to be about. It's going to be all seven to ten minute episodes, but a bunch of it is like some old MTV shit that they're re- uh, resurrecting, and I don't understand. Spielberg, it, it seems like he's reprimanding us. He's saying, look, this is what you're supposed to put on TV. Movies belong on in the cinema, you know? And what makes this worse is that this isn't like a startup company. Like, I would support this a little bit more if Spielberg was out there trying to get new up-and-coming filmmakers out there, but he's not. This is being uh, launched with a $500 million, like, marketing campaign. Am yeah. I correct? Something like that? And they're putting out $2 billion dollars. In content, in, in uh, production costs. Two billion dollars worth in content. Con- oh, man. That's not a startup. That's not a true startup. But he's calling it a startup. So he's reprimanding young filmmakers the way that the industry has widened up and made it easier for people to break in. He's attacking that. And now he wants to... Uh, and he's making a show with for a bunch of billionaire fat cats. Yeah. And God bless him. He's giving so many contributions to filmmaking, to pop culture, and even to horror. I mean, Jaws... One of the greatest horror films of yeah. all time. Poltergeist, another classic, was uh, his production, his, uh, his conception, his idea. So it's not like Steven Spielberg doesn't understand horror, that he's not capable of it. It just seems that he's become so far up the studio system that all he wants to do is reprimand the new ways that young filmmakers get out and go out and make their name yeah. while supporting nothing but corporate but corporate dollars. And the I don't market understand what he's what he thinks he's doing. The the game is changing and he's resistant to change with it. And with the game changing like it is and more cinematic films reaching these streaming services because they don't have to go through the studio system, they can go around it and be, get put on a streaming service. So why shouldn't they deserve an Academy Award? It just seems like he's pissing and moaning for no good reason. Mm-hmm. And then turning around and putting things on streaming services anyway. He just seems desperate. For a phone. Yeah. For a phone. Well, I I understand. I believe in preserving the theatrical experience because there's nothing that compares to going to seeing a movie on the big screen. I think it's great now that up-and-coming filmmakers now have better opportunities, more options now to get their films made. So we now are going to see a lot more filmmakers coming out. We see a lot more underground films. People have more instant access to films. And despite some of its drawbacks, it's overall been a good thing and a healthy and a positive thing for artists and people trying to come up in the community. Now, much more great movies on streaming services than there are in the cinema. I feel like uh, major studios have given up on taking chances on creative original films. Yeah. And that's where the streaming services come in and have um, provided the void for a lot of a lack of original content that comes out. Hardly anything ever original gets uh, comes out in movie theaters anymore. Yeah. When it does, nobody goes to see it. And I've noticed a decline in the qual- number of quality movies in theaters in the past few years. As Even back in 2015, you could go to a movie theater and still see some good movies. Now it feels like you have to live in a major city if you want to see a really good theatrical film. You have to exactly. live in L.A., San Francisco. And luckily we live so close to L.A., but for the average person who lives in, uh, who doesn't live next to a big city who can't make it to L.A. or San Francisco or New York or Chicago it becomes a drawback and a detriment and the streaming services have opened up a new avenue for a lot of for a lot of creative minds out there and spielberg seems so uh, stuck in the studio system 
that hasn't really that hasn't really been good for for creativity or originality anyway not not in years maybe a long time ago at a certain point yeah yeah and and let's face it people are spoiled by the streaming services because there's so many great movies coming out and so many great shows Shows also you don't need to go to the cinema unless it's going to be a big spectacle now for me i'll go to the cinema to see any great movie yeah, like a lot, a lot of the stuff on streaming services, I would like to see in the cinema. Yeah, don't but get it's me just wrong. not there. It's not there. Listen to this podcast, or I'll stab your eardrums with an ice pick. And uh, did you check out the Rob Zombie's movie Three from Hell, the trailer that dropped this week? What trailer? It was a teaser. You know exactly. how long the you know how long that was? It was fifty one seconds long. A good chunk of the clips at the beginning were made up of uh, stuff from House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects, which we've all seen. Yeah. And when it finally does get to it, the footage doesn't really reveal anything. It doesn't look bad. Like I don't look at it and think, "Oh, this looks bad" or "It looks terrible." But yeah. it doesn't tell me anything. It is so vague that it barely qualifies as a trailer. I call it more of a teaser. Yeah. Even that's pushing it. It's like an extended commercial. We've been hearing about it for weeks. Every day, the countdown, Rob Zombie drops three from hell trailer. It made such a big thing out of it. Like, it was going to be some big event, so I was looking yeah. forward to it. And I'm like, we didn't really get anything. I'm not any more or less excited about the movie based on that trailer. Because yeah. it's some vague clips that don't really tell you anything. And barely shows any of Three from Hell. And the, the ones that it shows, it's just telling you... Like close-ups of Sid Haig. Cool. Yeah. Some close-ups of Sherry Moon Zombie. You see Danny Trejo there. You don't really know what they're doing. You maybe see a, cl- a couple close-ups of like uh, hands and cuffs. Yeah. That's about it. So I'm still looking forward to it because I really do like uh, The Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses quite a bit. And I like when Rob Zombie does these types of films. And I'm looking forward to following these characters. But if he was gonna really do a trailer like that, he should have. If he was gonna hype it up like that, he should have gave us a more expansive trailer with a little bit more information. Or it would have been better if it was just surprise. I just dropped a teaser. I wouldn't yeah. have even thought. I was like, oh, cool, a little teaser. I yeah, checked there, it out. And nothing. There's but it's nothing just wrong. A, yeah, nothing wrong with it. Nothing it, wrong with putting out a little teaser. But if you tease for weeks before then that the big trailer is coming up, no, it's a slight teaser. I want to see the real trailer when it comes out because we know there's going to be more trailers that are coming out. Um, he should have just saved up the hype for that. But I still want to see the movie, though, Michael. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a movie. De- it's not deterring me. I was immediately excited about it coming out. We're rooting for Rob Zombie. <sighs> He's going back to these three characters that made him great. Oh, yeah. So hopefully he can, he can do him justice. And um, I think he could because, I mean... Seeing Sid Haig as Captain Spaulding is always going to be a sight to see. It's always going to be something to get excited about. Yeah. Seeing Otis Driftwood come back, Bill Mosley, Sherry Moon as Baby. I really like those characters. Only thing I'm missing is the mom. Yeah. Which is too bad that she's not coming because they really killed her off in the last one. Yeah. So. And the thing about Sid Haig and Bill Mosley, they're both horror icons. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the best role of their prospective careers. And yeah. they've done a lot of stuff. I mean, I mean, uh, Bill Mosley did Chop Top, but that was kind of a small part. And Sid Haig has has done a lot of a lot of great work, but a lot of it's in small parts. I don't feel like there's ever been a role like Captain Spaulding where it's as juicy as that that just let him shine the way that it did. Yeah. So uh, that's why I do think it's going to be good, is because I feel like Rob Zombie as a fan gets these actors, and the fact that he got the best, he gave them the best roles of their life. 
Yeah. Shows that he knows what's special about these actors as a fan. He knows what's uh, he knows their full potential and he knows what could come out of them. Yeah, and those three characters are a perfect match for Rob Zombie's dialogue. You're listening to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show podcast. I'm really excited for Doctor Sleep, although I have yet to see the trailer for it. Yes, yeah, so I have the trailer ready for I watched it earlier earlier today. I won't say my thoughts on it until James can watch it here, so we will play it here on the podcast, which you do sometimes. Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. Ewan McGregor is Danny. Danny Torrance. Cinematography looks good. Music's creepy. Well, always cinematography and music with Michael Mike Flanagan is on point always. School morning. A big crash knocks Danny Torrance out of bed. Adult Danny Torrance. Now he sees red rum in the window mirror. Based on Stephen King's best-selling novel. You're magic. Like me. He's almost playing like... Oh, the Halloran part, it looks like. The world's hungry place. A dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid... What the hell? Is that a shot from The Shining? No, 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 no. That's it's like a, a recreation. Recreation shot. of the original, oh, shot from the original Shining. There's, There's another the recreation. They got the bathroom and the hallway. It looks good. I was called it The Shining. Wait, that's a shot from The Shining for yeah. sure. The, the blood from the, the, the elevators. elevators. The twins? Yeah. Shine again. And oh my god, they're using music from 2001 A Space Odyssey, so they're playing up the Kubrick sequel huh. angle. Stephen King must not be very happy. <laughs> and rum. the door with red rum written on it that Jack Torrance busted through in the first one. He's looking through the hole. The, the Ming music. music. Okay, so this is not what I thought it was going to be. Wow. Okay. November 8th. All right, so here's what I find really surprising about this trailer. I find it it's took it take me it took me aback in a couple of ways. One, this is based on the novel uh, Doctor Sleep, which is Stephen King's follow-up to The Shining, which came out fairly recently in the past like 4 or 5 years yeah. or so. Um, it's not it's not as old as the original Shining. Now, from what I understood, this was to be an adaption of Doctor Sleep, not a sequel to the Shining film, an adaption of a new King work. And the reason that I did not make the connection to the Kubrick film is because, as is known in most serious horror, most horror circles, uh, uh, Stephen King is not a fan of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which is really too bad. But that's besides the point. 
The Shining novel uh, that Stephen King wrote is uh, quite a bit different from the movie that Stanley Kubrick made out of it. So I wonder how they're going to reconcile the Kubrick version with the King version because it seems like it's like like I said it's based on a Stephen King novel, a whole new story. I didn't think they were going to be making this as a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, but that's what it looks like it is though. But the novel, the novel is a sequel to the original novel which deviates from the movie yeah which makes it pretty interesting so i imagine it's gonna i don't know what it's gonna do i i I, that makes me even more curious now because i don't know what mike flanagan's angle is on that if it looks like he's counting it as a sequel because he's those are some pretty thorough recreations of shots from the shining and taking one and using the music and then mus- using a mu- music from another Kubrick film, another iconic Kubrick film, 2001, yeah. only pumps up those associations even more. So how do you show flashbacks to the original story from the original novel without showing... Because it's another cinematic telling of it, so it almost has to have the imagery of Kubrick's version. It you is. You know what I mean? Because if it, if it didn't have the... If it had completely new Im- imagery based solely on the book... And I wouldn't it, even it, consider it a sequel. I, it wouldn't I, make sense. I don't know. That's even more. I was actually interested in this anyway, only because I feel like, as of this moment, in my opinion, Mike Flanagan is probably the best filmmaker in horror at the moment, I'd yeah. say. So I'd watch anything he does, because I feel like he almost everything that he does is really of a really top-tier quality. Yeah. Even even the one I liked uh, the least out of all his movies, uh, Before I Wake. That was even, still pretty decent, though. Even that was very solid through most of it. It just got a little a little sappy towards the end. It seemed like it seemed like he was going backwards, but only because he filmed that before a couple of his movies. Like like basically, it was wrapped before up in, in studio red tape, and the, the studio went bankrupt. So it was kind of waiting in limbo while he made other movies and got better. And that kind of took him back to where he was before that. But still, that was even great. I'm looking forward to it more now that I know it's a sequel to Cooper, sequel to Kubrick's The Shining. Not that I think that anybody should be making sequels to Stanley Kubrick films, to be very yeah. clear. You can't really imitate Kubrick or hope to really recreate that style or that feeling. Yeah. But as a horror fan, I guess The Shining, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel to it. And who better than to me to hand it off to than for me, the best filmmaker working in horror at the moment. And perfect casting, Ewan McGregor as Danny Torrance. I love Ewan McGregor. I've anything he's in. I've never not liked Ewan McGregor in anything. Even when the movie wasn't good, he was always good in it. Yeah. So I just want to see how they reconcile... Hmm. How they're going to reconcile the Kubrick version and the King version, which come into a little bit of conflict. Yeah. So I haven't read the original novel. Did you see anything in the trailer that was wildly separate from the novel that did not happen in the original novel? I'm, I'm no. I mean, the, 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 the setup of the novel and the film are basically the same. It's more when it gets into the specific details where there, and characterizations. I think that's a big, the biggest thing is the characterizations, is that the way that they're described in the novel, the Jack Torrance character, the Wendy, Danny, are polar opposites to the versions of them that end up in the film where I, I guess Kubrick uh, King's version problem with uh, with Kubrick's is that Jack Nicholson in The Shining became was from the very beginning 
already pretty obviously insane just by the faces he was making. Yeah. And in uh, Kubrick's version, the Jack Torrance character is already a little bit unhinged, and it looks like he's fighting to keep his demons secret. It doesn't look like he's fighting his demons. Whereas in the novel, he comes across a lot warmer a lot the harsh nasty sarcasm that you see in Jack Nicholson yeah. is not really present in the novel he's a much sweeter character the Wendy character is a lot more outspoken and brave she's not as mousy and put upon and Danny is the exact opposite of how he is in the movie in the movie he's this very quiet withdrawn sullen strange boy in the novel he's a very lively little kid who yammers and just like full of sp- spunk and uh, spirit uh, obviously what happens to uh, uh, the Scatman Crothers character, uh, O'Halloran. Yeah. He has a much different fate in the novel. He actually survives to the end. He doesn't get axed like he does in the movie. And was he not in Doctor Sleep? I never read the Doctor Sleep novel. I was thinking that O'Halloran uh, was in uh, O'Halloran was in Doctor Sleep. So I do think it is possible to be faithful to Stephen King's Doctor Sleep while still making it a sequel to The Shining, so long as you just, you know, you don't go too much into the details, it could work. Yeah. It's a so, risky gambit, but I think it's something that could work. So what did we see? We saw we saw the carpet from mm. Kubrick's The Shining. We, we saw, saw the, Danny on the big wheel. We saw the bathroom. Yeah, we the saw the green bathroom. Rotting, uh, the old rotting lady in the bathtub was. And we saw the door with red rum on it and it where Jack had broken through it the, mm-hmm. with the hole in the door. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it, I think. But you know what? Another thing, when you stop and think about it a little bit harder, uh, a lot of what's, what's going to get people excited for it is going to be that it is a sequel to The Shining. Yeah. And let's face it, most of The Shining stature and pop culture and most of the love that it gets comes from the movie. Yeah. Uh, the movie is a lot more iconic than the novel is. So I don't think the studio, I don't think Warner Brothers wants to put out that property without being able to capitalize on, you know, on The Shining. Yeah. Because it's such an iconic film that that's going to draw more people in that it's simultaneously faithful to King's version and Kubrick's version. Well, I've seen people... And he's not making an adaption of The Shining, so that yeah. kind of frees him up to be faithful. He's making an adaption of Dr. Sleep. Yeah. Well, I've seen people online complain that, uh, uh, no, no more sequels. No, don't don't touch The Shining, but they fail to realize that it's a, a Stephen King That's... book that it, he's adapting with this. It's not... And, uh, yeah full-on sequel it comes from yeah that's what makes it that that's a weird complaint to me only because like i said it's a completely original original novel by stephen king and almost all of stephen king's novels are ripe for adaptations they cry they cry out to be adapted and And there's uh, a reason he's there's nobody's had as many of their works turned into films as as stephen king i think it was just people uh just that weren't aware yeah, the novel. I don't look at this as just being another, as like you know, another reboot or sequel. I look at it as an adaptation of a new book that has to capitalize on its iconic predecessor. Yeah, like Hollywood's running out of ideas. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and like I said, Mike Flanagan, fucking phenomenal filmmaker. Like, like I've always liked him, but what really, when I saw Gerald's <clears throat> Game. He took a Stephen King novel that I thought was not adaptable because I love Gerald's Game. Yeah. I never pictured that novel working cinematically. It just didn't feel like it's something that could be adapted. So when nobody I, did for years. And so when I went to when I sat down and I watched it for the first time, I was extremely 
skeptical. I'm like, okay, let's see how you're going to do this. And I was blown away. Yeah. He found a way to do it where it feels like its own complete experience that's separate from the book, but it's extremely faithful to the book. Yeah. It is like the best possible adaptation of that book that you could have asked for. And uh, Carlo, Carla Gugino, yeah. man, what a performance out of her. And then to follow it up with The Haunting of Hill House, which is basically... A, what I would call it like a 10-hour film. Yeah. What an amazing achievement. The acting, the drama, the scares, the way it built up suspense, the storyline, the way it resolved itself. He's just on fire to me right now. And he's already proven that he knows how to work with Stephen King. So and he's I'm done, really super excited for this one. He's done effective horror films. He's done effective horror films with a small budget, with a small scale. And, and a he's big also scale. done excellent horror films with a bigger budget and a big scale. This guy can do anything. And he does different types of horror. I mean, how do you compare Hush to Ouija 2? Yeah. And Ouija 2, which is itself a fucking achievement, because that first one was god-awful. Yeah. It was a terrible movie. And he managed to make a sequel that's exciting. Not only did he do that... He did it using one of the things that I most, one of the cheapest things that I most hate in horror movies is the jump scares, like the nonstop jump scares. He found a way in Ouija 2 to make that work where the jump scares were effective. They never felt out of place. They felt like they worked. And before that, he did what? Hush? Yeah. Which is so pared down. Which Small is not scale, sp- one, lo- one location, one No killer. supernatural elements, a very yeah. pared down, realistic story. So, and then to go in, go back, uh, to go up, to like reach outward with Ouija, and then to go back in with Gerald's Game and produce an even better film in Hush than Hush, in my yeah. opinion. And then to go wide again with a really expansive story like The Haunting of Hill House. This man has just fucking got it. He is, is the director to watch in right horror. Now. Yeah. So I am hyped for this one. Tim Burton's art is being exhibited in the U.S. for the first time in 10 years. A decade? At the, yep, at the Neon Museum in Las Vegas. But Tim Burton's such an American artist, and his a lot of the imagery in his films are so based in Americana that yeah. I don't understand how his, film, his stuff has not been displayed in the U.S. in a long time. Yeah, and I saw very uh, Beetlejuicey type of stuff in his art. So it's a lot it's of... It's going to be uh, in Las Vegas? Yeah. I would love to go see this because he actually had a, an art exhibit at LACMA a while ago. Yeah. Or was that... No, 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 no. That wasn't for his art. That was like stuff from his films. I take that back. I'm sorry. That's so right. it was actually more based on his films. I want to check I want to check it out because Tim Burton, he still has the visual imagination to create striking imagery and striking uh, things that stick in your head. Yeah. So I imagine the art is still fucking phenomenal. Yeah. He he still he can still pull off the visuals. I just think he needs a good script yeah. in order to make a good Though film. I did yeah. like Big Eyes. In the first half of his career is fucking incredible from Beetlejuice to Ed Wood. Yeah, Ed Wood's one of my favorite films. The Nightmare Before Christmas. I know he didn't direct that, but that's still a big part of his career as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, uh, I even like Sweeney Todd. I know that's not really part of the early part of his career, but I really enjoyed that one too. I really like that one a lot. A lot it's, yeah. it's pretty hardcore. Horror. horror film too and it's one of the few horror musicals that balances perfectly the horror and the musical aspects of it yeah and it was pretty it was a lot bloodier and gorier than i anticipated being at the yeah. time too <laughs> i was like damn tim burton especially <laughs> being a musical so the banana splits movie will be rated r and this is from sci-fi warner brothers their synopsis 
A boy named Harley and his family attend a taping of the Banana Splits TV show, which, by the way, was a real television series, which is supposed to be a fun-filled birthday for young Harley and business as usual for Rebecca, the producer of the series. But things take an unexpected turn and the body count quickly rises. Can Harley, his mom, and their new pals safely escape? I've only heard of the Banana Splits. I know what it is, but I never actually... I didn't grow up on that time, so I've never actually seen an episode of it. But it's a kid's show, right? That's not horror-themed at all. Yeah, it's these big uh, Sid and Marty Croft, like, oversized puppet things. It's, it's Oversized people, it, puppets are already always right for horror. Well, they're not actually puppets because it's people in costume, but they look like big, giant, fluffy puppets. And by the way, the, the thing that makes this pretty crazy is there was no horror elements or anything in the original Banana Split show. It was just a kid's TV show with these puppet creatures, like Sesame Street kind of. Just uh, it's, it's a cross between like Sesame Street and the monkeys, mm-hmm. where they jump and dance around and act goofy. So it's kind of weird that they would take this established brand, the Banana Splits, mm-hmm. and turn it into complete horror. And it looks like a pretty hardcore horror. We watched the trailer. And this is by being released by Sci-Fi and Warner Brothers as yeah. a direct-to-Blu-ray and DVD thing. How odd is that? Yeah, and it, it looks too good for Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi has a lot of bad stuff. Well, that's probably why they're releasing this one on Blu-ray instead of on their channel. Yes. Although, the Child's Play TV series, which I am looking forward to, is going to be on Sci-Fi. And I'm not looking forward to it because it's on Sci-Fi. I'm looking forward to it because Don Mancini is in control as a creative yeah. producer on that. So... That's why I'm looking forward to that one. But this one looks surprisingly surprisingly pretty good. And how did they get the rights to do this? Like, That's what I was thinking, too. Because I'd imagine that a lot of brands like that that are more associated with kid-friendly stuff, they wouldn't allow their name to be taken through and yeah. like, you know, put through the ringer of horror or dirtied up or anything like that. So I'm surprised that this actually went through. Well, it was a short-lived series, so maybe the the uh, rights for it were up to grabs. We'll and review it on the podcast as soon as we get our hands on a copy of it. Bloom, Bloomhouse is back at it again, producing a Black Christmas remake coming in December starring Imogen Poots. It's directed by Sophie Takal. Sophia. Uh, Sophia. Sophia Takal, who uh, I haven't seen it yet, but she directed one of the Hulu Into the Dark films where they ha- where they make a film for each holiday. I've seen a couple of them. They're actually pretty good. The one she directed was New Year, New You. So it must be good if, if uh, Jason Bloom seen New Year, New You and must have chosen her as And the it's keeping in with the director. holiday theme. I love the original Black Christmas. Uh, Mike and I actually had an opportunity to see it this past December Yeah. for Michael's birthday. We went to go see it on the big screen. It was, re- was really... I've, I've seen that movie so many times and I've always enjoyed it. But that was what cemented it for me, seeing it on the big screen showed me the full extent of how good that movie is and how effective it is as a slasher movie. Yeah. I wasn't there's already been a remake of this, which I wasn't a fan of. Although oh, it's trash. I, I like the soundtrack of that movie by Shirley Walker, the composer. Yeah. I like the compose uh composer because she also did a lot of stuff on Batman the animated series and Superman the animated series. So I always followed her around and I liked a couple of the kills. But it was it didn't really I don't know, it didn't capture what was really good about the original Black Christmas. Yeah. I'm not, like I said, I'm not big on, like, being remakes over and over, but, I mean, Blumhouse, not all of their films are great, but they have a pretty good track record, and Jason Blum is somebody who actually really understands horror and really gets it as a fan. 
So I'm I'm open to this. This is one of the slasher films, that, uh, one of the remakes that I'm open to because, hey, if it's good, fucking more power to it. I would like to see a good remake of Black Christmas. Yeah, why and, not? And I think uh, Bloomhouse movies are hit and miss only because he's got balls and he takes chances on things. And sometimes it falls flat, and sometimes it's great. I feel that it works more often than it does. It does, though. yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'll be checking this one out. What's the only thing that I found kind of strange about this is that. It's in pre-production as of today. We checked on IMDb. Yeah. That was like, are they going to be rushing this? Because it's pre-production. It's not even production. When do they film? And when they're going to just edit it really fast and get it out for Christmas? I, I just know. hope that it's not a rushed a rush schedule and that they give Sophia time. You know, enough time for her to really allow the film to breathe and make it. And, you know, uh, congratulations, too, because we always talk about it, with especially with our monthly women in horror. It's nice to see more women directing horror films now. Especially also. slashers. Especially slasher films. Which so, are, are notoriously misogynistic at yeah. times, yeah. And we, we all seen how good uh, women do when they do exploitation films like uh, like Revenge. So, yeah. Uh, um, I want to see it. I'm not, I'm not in the least bit apprehensive about watching this one. It's one of the rare times that I'll be like, yeah. I'll, I'll go see a Black Christmas remake. Yeah, I mean, Why I mean, not? I think it's kind of silly that they're remaking it again after the, they already failed, as far as I'm concerned, with the first remake. But this might but, shape up to be pretty good because I like Imogen Poots. I don't think she would pick a clunker of a film. I don't think so either. So, Miramax is on the market. Miramax Films, the company that was started by Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Now, horror fans may ask, what the fuck does that have to do with horror? But uh, Miramax is actually home to two of the biggest slasher franchises in history, yeah. Halloween and Scream. Variety wrote that the Qatar-based Ben Media Group is seeking to sell up to 50% of Miramax in a deal that would value the studio founded in 1979 by Bob and Harvey Weinstein at $650 million. Currently, Bayon owns the company in its entirety, the story comes straight from a Wall Street Journal report, and Universal might actually purchase Miramax is what the word on the street is about this, which would actually be a good thing for horror because Universal Studios is the major uh, the major Hollywood studio that has the most history with horror with like... They do the the Halloween Horror Nights. Yeah. And whenever Blumhouse, which we were just talking about, whenever Jason Blum and Blumhouse are producing a horror film that might be a little bit out of their budget or their price range, they always reach out to uh, Universal Studios to, you know, cover the rest of it. And Universal yeah. always comes through, like 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 Halloween or something like that. And Universal is the one major studio that really gets horror and respects it and gives filmmakers freedom. I mean, they snatched up Jordan Peele, the instant, the success of Get Out, yeah. and they let him create an original film. They didn't force... A franchise on him they came brought him in and say no we want you to make an original horror film for us and yeah. it fucking it paid off for them too see how big that film was what a, what a big hit yeah us was for the studio so if anybody big studio does buy it i would like to see universal because they would know what to do with the halloween and the scream franchises because yeah, it's one of these times where a big studio is buying these little production companies so they can put their little nasty movies there that they could never get away with putting out under their name. Yeah. And Universal has always been willing to take chances, more chances on horror than any other studio I know. So if anybody picks it up, I hope it's them because they would really know how to hollow, uh, hollow, handle the Halloween franchise. The only one that I, I question is that Scream. 
I don't, I'm not really sure if there should be another Scream, only because unlike every other slasher franchise, whether it's A Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or Halloween or... Yeah. Uh, it's always been one filmmaker consistently, a consistent vision across it. And except for one film, it's been one writer. So one director across it, it's always been Wes Craven. It's the, That series is too wrapped up in Wes Craven's directorial style, yeah. in my opinion, for me to see it being handed off. If it had been a franchise that Wes Craven started, and then another person did the sequel, and another person did the sequel, and another person did the fourth one, yeah. I might be more open to a Scream 5. As it is, the only way that I could imagine getting on board is if Kevin Williamson wrote it and they resurrected Wes Craven to direct it. Yeah. Short of that, I can't really imagine getting on board with the Scream sequel. And it's too meta. It's it's too hard to try to remake a meta movie. It's too hard to try to remake it, and it's too wrapped up in Wes Craven as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. He, he stood by... And I think it's because he didn't like the direction the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise went in with all the different directors and uh, different creative input in the studio, that yeah. I imagine he didn't want that to, uh, to happen with Scream, so he kept making sure that he directed it every time. And he did it so much that it's his now. Yeah. You can't really reclaim that. Well, they could do the, the remake reboot angle, you know, how they did general horror movies angle with the first one and then the, the sequel angle with the second one. I still have faith in Kevin Williamson. Yeah. Like, I, I have no doubt he could produce a good scream, but you'd have to get... I mean, I take that back. I would see it again. I would see another one. But they'd have to get somebody like Mike Flanagan or someone like that involved or... Or a really strong up-and-comer. Or, you know. yeah, or a really, really, really strong up-and-comer. I, I would say Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, but I highly doubt they yeah, would they be. Wouldn't. Yeah, they would I don't think they'd no. do scream. <laughs> and not only that, I'd rather see those two... Continue on the path they're on. I original like that work, they're yeah. making original art house horror films and they're making careers out of it, which I feel is something new. We're used to having like Wes Craven or John Carpenter and not saying that their films aren't art. To me, films are all art. I know how sound pretentious that sounds. Yeah. But like Hereditary and The Witch and uh, Ari Aster's upcoming Midsommar and Robert Eggers' upcoming uh, The Lighthouse are like art house horror films and they seem like they're carving out a new career, uh, a new career style to make art films that are also horror at the same time. Yeah. So I don't really think they want to do Scream. Yeah, and I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, so let's see whatever they do. Let's hope Miramax falls into good hands. The Swamp Thing series was canceled after one episode, and yeah, this is this has been a hot mess all week, dude. Rumors flying around. It, it is bullshit. Fans are upset. I actually had, I haven't seen the second episode yet, and apparently they're going to let the entire season air, even though it was canceled. I only saw the first episode, and I don't want to reveal too much that people should watch it. It was, I was impressed. I liked it. I liked the yeah. direction it was going in. It seemed like a genuine horror. It seemed like genuine horror. It's one of DC's, DC Comics properties that's not as explored, has a lot of potential in the world. And one episode, I was like, all right, cool. I could get on board with this. I want to continue it. And the very next day, like literally the night after I watched the first episode, I read the next morning that it was canceled. I'm like, yeah. what? Don't you think this is going to sour a lot of people who are already sour on the app as it is? And half don't people know. don't even know about it. What the fuck is Warner Brothers doing? It was on the DC Universe app, which I just so happened to have because as a side note, I'm also a big DC comics nerd. I'm really hardcore, like Batman. 
Yeah, the comics, not the movies. Yeah, comics. <laughs> I like their animated movies. I'm a yeah. big fan of DC's line of animated films, which are phenomenal. So Besides, they haven't translated very well to the big screen, live no, action anyway. not live action. Besides the point, I already had this app just because I'm a fan of their animated films. So I really liked the first episode. And Warner Brothers is acting really weird. This was their response. This is their full official statement. We appreciate there are questions as to why, but unfortunately we are not in a position to answer it at this time. Bullshit. Yes, you are. You know exactly why you canceled it. You're just being fucking around the bush because you don't want to create more ill will towards your brand. I mean, that statement creates ill will towards their brand. So they originally had a three-season plan. They hired Len Wiseman, a director, to do like the pilot and direct some episodes. And the reason from and this is this this is one of the reasons the rumors flying around as to why it was canceled is Len Wiseman is known for more procedural, typical formula uh, television series that he's been involved in directing. Yeah. They brought him on so he could do some kind of turn it into more of a formulaic procedural, like a CSI type of thing. Yeah, huh? he came on though and really loved and respected the material and wanted to play up the horror angle. And I imagined as a as a director, he probably thought of it. Oh shit! This is my way out of that little, very narrow little ghetto of. Just the uh, of just doing these formulae. Like this is I could really put a horror spin on this and really get at to the horror. And because Swamp Thing is very much a horror comic book, it's a yeah. horror series, and it really plays it up very well. Reportedly, Warner Brothers was very upset, and like I said, these are just in industry rumors that Warner Brothers was upset that they didn't get something more formulaic and that the horror angle was played up. And they think that since it's only for hardcore comic fans and horror fans, and I kind of fall into both categories, yeah. that it's too niche. And I was like, the fucking app is niche that yeah. it's on. It's a DC Universe app. It's only for fans of fucking DC comics. So I have no idea what they're, what they're doing. The other rumor is that it costs too much to make. Yeah, the financial thing. <sighs> Which one is it, assholes? Like, they have to make it up. But James Wan uh, was actually producing, and apparently he's really <clears throat> upset and says that he doesn't understand why, but he's urged everybody to keep watching the season because he thinks it's worth seeing, and he said a lot of people put a lot of creativity and hard work into it, so he wants people to watch the first season to its very end, and I intend to. I'm going to watch the whole thing. It's just I have a strong feeling since they already had a three-season plan that it's going to end with some cliffhanger that's never going to be resolved, and that's really upsetting. And to do it one day after when uh, apparently it had good ratings for the first time, yeah. and it's really well-reviewed, and in my opinion, it was pretty good. It was shaping up to be something something interesting. Yeah. So I don't, I don't understand it. Warner Brothers has been mishandling their live-action DC properties for a very long time. I imagine they want to make it more formulaic, like their CW shows, like The Arrow and The Flash, which I'm not uh, really a fan of. That I'm not a fan of the CW style, CW style of television it's shows. It's cheap and it's cheap and cheesy and trite. Yeah. And Swamp Thing was going for something a lot different because those comic books are not like that. So I'm fucking so I'm upset about this one. I think it's bullshit to be quite frank. So isn't uh, Warner Brothers the one that James Wan released the Conjuring films through? Yeah. So he have, he obviously has, and he also did Aquaman. Yeah. So he has a connection to Warner Brothers with horror and with uh, DC Comics with his because Aquaman was such a massive success. So it only makes sense that he would have his hand in another DC property. And yeah. I was thinking that at some point in the future we might even get James Wan to direct a few episodes of Swamp Thing, but that doesn't look like it's going to come to fruition after all. 
Well, hopefully the, it'll they'll finish the season and it'll be popular and there'll be a demand for it. You never know. I wouldn't be surprised if another company picked it up because... Yeah, I was going to say, take it away from Warner Brothers, dude. The first chance you can get. Or, I mean, treat you they like can't that. take it away from Warner Brothers, but Warner Brothers has done deals with other shows, with other television, with other companies. So I imagine if they let it, hand it off to someone else and just keep their branding on it, they could be fine so long as they don't have to be responsible for the finances behind it. Yeah. But they shouldn't have made it that expensive in the first place. Or did somebody not check the financial records? And Or if, if that's even the reason. Yeah. If that's even the reason. And something tells me it's probably more creative. Yeah, we, we don't... Creative behind the scenes. We don't know drama. the real reason. We just started hearing these rumors right away and it's been a, it seemed a different one every couple of days. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, the guy from Warner Brothers says, we don't know. That there's reasons we're not going to tell you. <laughs> I don't know how they expect to build... A bigger audience for their DC Universe app if they're gonna play if they're gonna play bullshit bait and switch games on their on their audience. Yeah, uh, that's it for our news. And uh, before we get to the stuff we watched this week, I wanted to go over a couple things I did uh, over the last two weeks. There just so happened to be three things that come up. One of them was the I like scary movies. It was a pop up that in LA. It's a, a basically an art installation slash. Um, photo booth type of thing where they took the shining lost boys beetlejuice and it they took an old building building in la and in each section of the building they would transform it into an artistic expression of each one of these movies so in the shining you got the the shining uh overlook hotel carpeting you got the the elevator with the blood coming coming out out of it yeah and it was like strings or something red strings and uh, the Lost Boys had the bridge that you could hang from. So it combines people's love of selfies and horror into one big thing. Yeah. You took a lot of pictures on this, didn't you? Oh, yeah, and I'll be posting those on the page. Check out our page. Uh, at Pickles Horror Show. At Pickles Horror Show. Or, or Facebook.com slash Pickles Horror Show or at Pickles Horror Show on Instagram. Yeah, because Mike will be posting up some pictures that he took there pretty soon. I myself did not get to attend this event, though I would have liked to have. Yeah, and it's a, I hate to say it, but it's kind of a, it's a, kind of a thing for normies. Like everybody loves The Shining, Lost Boys, Beetlejuice, and it. It's not for hardcore horror fans, but it still seems th- like can, it's fun, though. You can still get a thrill out of it because it's fun being immersed. Because you do love these movies, even though all the normies love them. Hardcore horror fans love these movies too, and it's great being submerged in that world. And to, you know, play around and take pictures. Like, uh, Fred, it was Nightmare on Elm Street 2, so it was Freddy's big glove. Nightmare uh, on Elm Street 2? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was Freddy's big giant glove. They had to bring it in on a big flatbed So they're not truck. going totally mainstream. I mean, yeah. if they did, they would have just did the first or the third one. Yeah, so, so they are big giant works of art, but they're also lit just right to take selfies with and to take pictures with. So it's, and uh, apparently the last time I heard... Uh, they've had visitors from all 50 states. That shows you how much people want to, how much people like horror, actually. How yes. much they want to be. Did it feel immersive when you were there, though? Like, did you feel like you were exploring the environment? Obviously, they're, they're rec- recreations. They're yeah. not the actual films. But did you feel like you were, like, exploring the environment of these movies? Yeah, in, in like, a fun, candy-colored way. Oh, cool. Like, there, there wasn't a whole lot of detail. It was all big, big set pieces. You recognizable know. things too though right yeah though you did show me that one picture you got to get inside 
uh, the, the you have a recreation of the Shining bathroom, right? The one yeah. where we were just talking about earlier, where the old lady rises out of. You got to people actually got to lay down in the bathtub and like recreate the scene. Yeah, if they wanted to, so you could recreate scenes here and act them out in your own little private. Yeah, it was could, and it was interactive too. And then uh, how how so? Where you could like for instance when you walk into the it. Uh, installation mm-hmm. you know that big thing that uh, Pennywise had in the in the new one where it's that big thing of of like all the kids belongings and stuff and all the kids were floating around it mm-hmm. it's one of those so it had Pennywise's big giant toothy mouth coming out of the sides of it so you could like stick your head in the mouth or you could go inside of it and stick your head out and take pictures or uh you could like in the the shining thing. You could get in the bathtub in the bathroom, and you could uh, you could like go up to the door where Jack Torrance was. It has his axe marks in it. Oh, that's funny. And you could look through the axe marks, and then you see that bear. So you could in there. You could do the here's Johnny pose and take yeah. a picture of it. And these they had these really cool uh, perspective type of things. It's like a wall made out of the carpeting mm-hmm. in the front, and then in the back is another piece of the carpeting and then you kind of get in the middle in between those two things so it looks like you're existing on a different plane so those are cool kind of pictures so they had a beetlejuice set you said yeah was there a handbook for the recently deceased yes there was (laughs) okay good i was like you cannot recreate the beetlejuice set without having a copy of that book like because to be honest i've always wanted to read that book i know it's not real but (laughs) i if they ever made it into a real book i would check it out it leaves on uh, June 14th, so it's not going to be here very much longer, but hopefully it'll be back. The best way to accentuate this experience for me is what we did. is We went from, I like scary movies, which is, like I said, more for normies, but it's also for hardcore horror fans. Mm-hmm. And then we went over to Burbank to the Bearded Ladies Mystic Museum, which is like very authentic if if the other thing was very showy and very flashy and very big but still fun yeah but still fun this one was small and intimate totally different experience from the first one but it felt more genuine more personal yeah personal had a a, a lot of history there. there there's there was a uh, all kinds of Ouija boards everywhere throughout from throughout history different uh incarnations of Ouija boards there was occult collector pieces uh, my f- my personal favorite was black the black Philip display. There was a full ceiling to black, floor. Wait, just to clarify our audiences, black Philip is from the witch. Yes, the goat. It's the the goat <clears throat> that's supposed to represent and symbolize Satan himself. Yeah. And it's a full art piece from ceiling to floor, and it's kind of it's like a a little scene, like a detailed scene with uh, now, Black Phillip sticking out of it. That's fucking cool. As anybody who listens to this podcast knows, I talk about The Witch a lot. It's yes. probably my favorite horror film of the last decade. That's, and it's, it's big in horror circles and it's really debated. Some people love it, some people hate it, but it's not like a big pop culture thing the way that The Shining is. Yeah. So that's how I know this is like for hardcore horror fans that the fact that they actually have a, fa- a Black Phillip display in there that's pretty cool. I would definitely take a picture with that. Yeah, my, my friends were exploring the museum, and here I was nerding out on Black Phillip, kind of uh, comparing his goatee to mine and taking selfies with him. <laughs> but they also had stuff like a vintage medical equipment, uh, carnival memorabilia. On top of all that stuff that they always have there, they always have different installations. And the installation that was there this time was Adam's Family. 
Oh, that's pretty cool. It was a lot of cool. Everything from the old TV show all the way up to the the new movies and stuff. So it incorporates the entire history of the Adams Family. It's just not a specific version of it. Yeah. Those really cool part of the museum had a a life-size replica of uh, the original Morticia. Oh. And it looks so real, and they had all this stuff around her, like an electric chair was next to her and all these Ouija boards. It's just a really cool little museum. What you do is you go in. It's it's near uh, Dark Delicacies in Burbank. So mm-hmm. we actually stayed too late at the museum. Otherwise, we would have went ahead and went to Dark Delicacies as well. They just, they just moved in Burbank. But uh, uh, that was really cool because you walk into the bearded ladies. It's like a bearded, bearded ladies shop. Mm-hmm. In the front, and you kind of look around in the shop, and then you you pay ten bucks to go in the back to the to the museum. And another thing uh, that James was supposed to go to, unfortunately, he wasn't able to go. He had to work. We went to obligations. The Rated R Speakeasy. It's a horror themed speakeasy. This was also like in the L.A. Hollywood area. This again, much like I like scary movies, they just took an old building in L.A a huge building, like a warehouse type of building. Uh, they put a Volkswagen bus in it uh, with like dead people driving. And then in the back, you could crawl into the back and there'd be a tarot card readings. And uh, there was a alien bar, like a bar with a big alien over it. And they had a, like specialty drinks and stuff. And there would be a, a bartender that would hang upside down on a swing and you'd pay a couple extra bucks and she would fix your drink upside down. There was giant hanging bat uh, there were screenings. We watched the movie Boar there. I want to check that out this week. It's actually available on Shutter now. But Michael got to see Boar, B-O-A-R, yeah. before it was screened. And you didn't even know what it was when you were watching it, did you? No. All they said, it was a, a Shutter exclusive that we got a free sneak peek at it that night. So there's this big room with a screen in it and all these inflatable chairs everywhere so you just flop down in the inflatable chairs and just sit there and watch a movie while people are in the other room getting drunk and partying and you could vaguely hear the dj going but there were like all kinds of like go-go dancers dancing with like gas masks on and all kinds of weird outfits so basically in the dj part they were playing music and then they were projecting horror movies on the wall all around so basically a a montage of horror movies were playing while you're dancing and these go-go dancers are dancing around. Also, there was an outside patio. I seen a lot of stars there. And it was it was one of those things where it's almost like a it was a speakeasy, it was a horror a horror fan event, but it was a secret type of thing. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of stars there. Like uh, Joe Lynch was there, uh Tiffany Shepis from Tromeo and Juliet and Victor Crowley. Uh, Caroline Williams was there from uh, Stretch from Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. We're going to have her on the show pretty soon. Yeah, we're, pro- we're, we're definitely in talks to have her on the show. Don't ask me why I didn't go up and talk to her that night. I guess I was just overwhelmed by the whole thing. Not only that, it's sometimes with a lot of these people, especially in the horror industry, is that uh, what you got to understand is that it's the most accessible of any film genre that a lot of people who are involved in horror are really friendly people and easy to talk to. But there's a part of me that doesn't feel like bothering a lot of them, even though, you know, they're not going to be rude just because out of respect, you know, you want them to be able to feel like they're normal and they can just go to these events and enjoy things without being hassled or being told something. Cause I feel like the only thing I'm going to tell them is something they probably heard a million fucking times from other people. I don't feel like bothering them sometimes when I see them. It's just better to let people be. 
And even though I'm a fan, I don't want to run up and be a fan. A fanboy. Yeah. I look a, like a fanboy. I want to be their peer, which means if I see them available off by themselves or, or I see an opportunity, I'll go up and talk to them. But if they're standing around talking to people, which like Joe Lynch and Caroline Williams, as you can imagine, they had people around them all night. So I never got a really chance to get in there. I know I should have because especially with Caroline Williams, since I already talked to her on Instagram and she already gave me her publicist information and all that. So I should have went up and talked to her, but I'm still a little awkward with the, with this thing, <laughs> with yeah. the, the horror thing. I, I don't... And there's a part of you that I guess that wants to be respectful to them as people. Yeah, exactly. Because that's, that's the feeling that I get also. Or yeah. I only approach people if I feel... If it really, really, really feels right, I've like I've approached a lot of people before, yeah. and there's sometimes where I've seen people and decided not to just because the context didn't feel proper for me to even do that. And you never know what kind of reaction you're gonna get. Sometimes, like the the bigger stars, you walk up to them and they're just uh, so down to earth and easy to talk to, and then you walk up to somebody who's from a B movie that you barely know, and they're an asshole. So you never know how how they're gonna react either to to you coming up to them. Thoroughly enjoyed all three of these things. I like scary movies, Bearded Ladies, Mystic Museum, and Burbank, and Rated R Speakeasy. Look it up on Instagram, Rated R Speakeasy, and you can get on his mailing list. He doesn't advertise when these things are. He doesn't say what the the address is. You don't get the address until you RSVP and you get your spot in there. Not everybody gets a spot. So it's it's a really cool thing. So uh, you you definitely have to go to the next one, James. Yeah. I, th- I think you really like it. Let's get started on what we watched this week. What did you watch, James? Well, I've been using this podcast as an excuse to cover blind spots. I watched Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yes, classic. Michael Rooker. I've known about this film for well over a decade and have been meaning to watch it for a long time. And when I was scrolling through Amazon, I saw it there under movie recommendations and I put it on my watch list and watched it a couple days later. And boy... Does it live up to its reputation? Gritty is not the word for it with that one. Okay, so as a horror fan, I really love horror. For the most part, horror movies don't scare me. There's the occasional ones that do. And even the ones that scare me, scare me in a way that are really, really fun. This movie, I need to admit, actually gave me nightmares. After I watched it, I couldn't get it out of my head. And I kept waking up in the middle of the night with the sense and the feeling that the movie gave me. I watched it somewhere and then I headed to another house afterwards. And when I got dropped off in my Uber, I ran up to the door, turned like be, I actually turned around and was looking, walking up to the door backwards, like looking out at the street out of fucking paranoia and fear. Uh, And when I was watching the movie, it was one of the few movies or horror movies where I like to see the gore and the kills and stuff like that. This is like every time you thought he was about to kill somebody, I started to get filled with dread and thinking, please, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. This is one of the most effective horror movies I've ever seen, though I can't even completely describe it as horror. Only well, because... Plus you know that it happened. Yeah. Really and it's happened. based on the serial killer, uh, Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah. And apparently some of this, the serial killer is based on, some of his story is actually a little bit dodgy. And it's disputed how many people he actually killed, and it's been proven that he took more credit for a lot of killings that he didn't commit than actually happened. So he's a little bit of a liar, though he was a serial killer 
what uh, which ones he actually committed and which ones he didn't are act are really up for debate. Regardless, the movie plays like a documentary, and it's not surprising. It was directed by John McNaughton, and before Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, all this uh, all this man ever did was documentaries, and he got hired to make a horror film, and they wanted like some kind of exploitation or uh, I guess you would call it like exploitation or a slash or something to make a quick buck off of, yeah. and what he gave them was something completely different. As a movie, it's not really cinematic, and it's not very artful. It's barely color-corrected. The acting performances are a little bit bland at times. Yeah. And in the end, it kind of works for it, and it makes it seem more real, because there's such a lack of polish and like cinematic splashes. You feel like you're watching something that actually took place. Yeah. Usually, like, like you know, lighting and cool camera angles and stuff like that, as much as we all love that stuff, it puts a wall between you and the material that reminds you that we're watching them, uh, you're watching a movie. By stripping this movie of all of that polish and all the production and everything, it just puts you directly into the content yeah. in a way that I've never seen a movie do before. It really felt like you were watching murders take place. You didn't feel like you were watching a horror movie scene. You felt like you were watching footage. And there was times where I had to struggle to stay looking at the screen. Uh, the main actor of this movie is uh, Michael Rooker. Yeah. Most people probably know these days from The Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, he plays Henry. And his performance is very like bland, barely there, very minimal acting. And... In any other traditional perform, any other traditional movie, you would almost look at it as a bad performance. But for this one, I wouldn't call it a bad performance because I feel it really works. It's that bland, kind of effectless attitude that really sells his sociopathy. Yeah, just emotionless. Any other method actor would have done all these calculated tricks and stuff to freak the audience out. Yeah. And he just sells it because he doesn't seem to be affected by any of it. He seems like a genuine sociopath when he's uh, committing out his murders. Yeah. And th they look pretty realistic, for, except for one scene that broke it for one second that was obviously fake. Nothing about it seems fake. And he kills people in a number of different ways, and he never does the same thing twice, I guess, so, it's a, so he wouldn't get caught. Yeah. And he has a friend in the movie that he takes under his wing named... Um, that Otis. friend was more skeevy yeah. than he was. Tom dude. Towles, Ugh. who plays uh, Sheriff, the original Sheriff Wydell yeah. in the House of a Thousand Corpses, um, was an even skeevier fucking character than he was because he took him under this his wing and taught him to kill people. But where Henry, well, it seemed like he enjoyed it. There's a very cool removed distance from it, like he did it almost passionlessly. Yeah, his friend seemed to revel in it, like really, like a nasty and. Nasty mind, and he's fucking ugly too. And it's not an insult, yeah. but dude, such an ugly person on the inside and out. Um, he takes joy in fucking really torturing and like really like tormenting these people. Yeah, and filming it with that stupid little camcorder and then the watching most, it back and getting off on it. The, that's the most disturbing scene in the movie is they break, and you don't even see the actual scene, you only see them watching it back on the yeah. camera. They break into a family's house. They rape the mother in front of the father and the son. They stab the father to death in front of the son while he's watching his mother being raped and his dad stabbed and the mother screaming and then they break his neck and they continue to rape her before, before killing her and it was just fucking so hard for me to even continue looking at the screen. I felt like I was watching something 
genuinely wrong. It yeah. got under my skin in a way that's hard to that's hard to really describe. In a way that most movies affect me, don't affect me. This one really hit me hard. Another interesting character in the film is the sister. The sister, Tracy Arnold, Becky, placed played by Tracy Arnold. She's actually the sister of Otis, Tom, the Otis character, Tom Towles, who's the more depraved one that Henry takes under his wing. Yeah. They live with the sister. And he fucking rapes her. Yeah. He takes pleasure in fucking raping his little sister. He's a sick, sick individual. And it's weird because it makes you hate him. But Henry, for all the fact that he's not as nasty of a person, he's still a very disturbed individual. And all of their performances have a totally, like, bland, effectless feel that only for me makes the depression of the movie seep in. And I'm not going to give away the ending, but the ending to me made me feel ugly and really bleak yeah. only because it gives a sense of little hope and some kind of goodness only just to take it away right away at the end. So by the time that movie was over, I was shaken to my core. It's yeah. a fucking powerful piece of filmmaking, powerful horror film it has exploitation elements, but I think it's far too, uh, to be frank, I think it's far too intelligent. Yeah. Not, not to trash because I love grindhouse and exploitation, but it serves its purpose. But it's far too intelligent for me to consider it exploitation horror. And it's just the most realistic thing I've ever seen. There's a layer of sadness to it, too. Yeah. Like, it's these melancholy. are really sad individuals, and the things they do to people is sad. And nothing and about the, it makes the, you feel the good. The sister is just a sad character. She's a sad character, and, and she doesn't seem like she's a bad person. Yeah. But she excuses, even though she doesn't really know what her brother and that guy are up to, she excuses some really questionable things. She knows that he killed his mom. Uh, Henry killed his mom. Yeah. And she seems like, like instead of being smart, she uses that to get closer to him. And, oh, we can relate. I know what it's like not to fit in. And yeah. you could all these are just really three sad, miserable, wretched souls that lit. And then you hear Henry's backstory. It makes sense that he grew up to be a serial killer. And this is true. His mom was a prostitute who used to beat him and force him to watch sex with her having to watch her having sex with other men. He used to dress him up in women's clothing and torture yeah. him and do things like that. So it's not really and this is true, that's part of the true story. It's not really surprising that Henry became such a fucking sociopath in his upbringing. Yeah. And the same thing, I'm not gonna go into all their backstories, but his friend Otis and the little sister they had a really depressing, depressing, shitty upbringing, too. It seeks in depression. You feel depressed watching it, and you feel ugly on the inside. You yeah, feel you, like... You know you, these people existed. They were... They really did people. this. And watching Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, to me, is like coming face-to-face with the ugliest parts of ourselves, with the ugliest parts of humanity. Listen to this podcast, or I'll gut you. And I think that's what makes it, makes it such such an effective experience and one that I'll never forget. Though it's going to be a good while before I ever watch it again, only because I don't want to feel for a while what this movie made me feel. Yeah. Masterfully done, but it made me feel so thoroughly awful on the inside and so scared and so paranoid. Powerful stuff. I recommend it with caution that this... I know that there's some horror, hardened horror fans like, oh, I think I can take anything. This is not your typical... I warn you with caution that if you're going to watch this movie, be prepared for a rough experience. If you're looking for like a fun horror movie or something just exciting, you just want to see this, this is not what you're looking for. Watch this if you want to see the bleakest possible version of a slasher movie that you could imagine. And not blood and guts everywhere. 
Just no. watching these people interact and kill people and so nonchalantly. Is what makes it effective. Yeah. A Henry portrait of a serial killer really floored me, shook me up, and made me look at the world in a very <laughs> bad light. Yeah, it took me a, it took me a couple days to shake that film off for me to feel normal again. I've seen it too many times where I'm desensitized by it now, but you don't even feel good being desensitized by it. Because you're like, you why know? am I being desensitized? But when you first saw it, did you have a reaction that I do, or did you have a similar reaction? Oh yeah, did it, did it fucking get under your skin the way it's, it did? It's for one me? of those movies you just watch with a scowl on your face. Yeah, the whole time. <laughs> That's the way I was like. I even thought about it after, and I was like, "Man, if somebody filmed me watching this movie, it would be nothing but sour faces yeah. and looks of contempt." <laughs> like a like a Serbian film, it reaches those levels where it gives you that sour puss, but it's just on your face the whole time during Henry Portrait serial serial killer, because you you never know when the killings are going to come. They don't present themselves. That they, they they don't do a setup. They're just in their everyday lives, and they confront someone. They're or banal. someone brings a victim home, or I think it's how mundane the violence is that makes it even more disturbing. Yeah, the like, banal, casual violence that these people just carry off. Yeah, like, like oh, let's let's go hang out, let's go drive around. Let's oh, there's a person somebody. to kill, you know. Or taking advantage of these poor people who they bait into like you know pulling over like they mm-hmm. need help, only to fucking murder them in cold blood. I'm like these poor fucking innocent souls. Yeah, are trying to help them out. And there's this one scene mm. in the movie. Where it filled me with dread, and it was that night when Henry was walking the streets, and he sees this older lady with her little dog, and I was like, oh, God, yeah. I don't want to see him do this. I don't want to see the dog get killed. I don't want to see her get killed. I don't want it. And he starts following them, and he decides not to go after them after all. I can't recall another horror film where I was actually relieved that they held back and the horror didn't come, that I felt like a sigh of relief, just like, oh. Man, I'm glad I didn't have to see that. I'm glad yeah. it didn't go there. I'm glad I didn't see him brutalize a tiny dog or anything like that. Yeah. And knowing that it's men mm. like that who have stripped our society of its innocence. Yeah. That they've made it to where you there was no way you would stop and help somebody in distress. Not now. Especially not after seeing that film. I wouldn't want to pull over for anybody because that just makes me not trust the world. Yeah, and I'm the type of compassionate person. I want to stop and help anybody in distress, but... You can't, you can't trust do it that now. because you might end up, and especially if you're with your family or something, you can end up putting your loved ones in danger yeah. out of trying to do a good deed for somebody. Because <clears throat> sick individuals come out and do stuff like this, and then other sick individuals hear about it, and they want to do something like that. So it's just, it's just completely stripped our society of its innocence, and it's people like him, you know? I think it's the fact that knowing it's real and the fact that it feels real and it has such a documentary-like approach... And it's just like so matter of factly presented that makes it what it, that makes it what it is, and I I guess this was made shot in 1985. It wasn't released to the public until 1990. I didn't until it. uh, it didn't get released into the public until after some they revived it in '89 at a couple of festivals where it really made an impact. So they finally released it, but it's something that's so extreme. Just distributors looked at it and they didn't know what to do with it. They were like, how do I market this? This isn't, am I going to market this as a regular horror film? If I market this as horror, it's going to get backlash because people think they're going to go see a fun horror. Or yeah, it's or it's not fun. And that's <laughs> not what it is. So I imagine that's why it took so long for the public to finally see it. And what's strange is that a lot of, I love 80s horror. 80s has some of the best horror films, but the 80s ha, as a decade has some aspects about it that are kind of funky or cheesy. 
This movie sell felt so 80s, but not cheesy at all. It has the 80s vibe with none of the fucking corniness that comes with it. With it. Like you're almost watching a home movie that was filmed back then. And it kind of captures the culture a little bit. The yeah. culture, the look, the style. And the look of the movie, it's not just that the lack of polish... It takes place in dirty, ugly, squalid, nasty locations yeah. that all look unpleasant to the eye. Everything about it looks unpleasant. And I think psychologically, that makes everything... You don't see any... like for, It's all bland and ugly and run down. Like, yeah. There's nothing about it that's nice to look at. They're trashy people who live in squalor. It's, it's just gritty and nasty. Yuck. Yeah. But good movie. <laughs> good movie. I, I got to commend the director, uh, John McNaughton. Kudos. You made... Arguably one of the very most effective horror films in history, period. So that was my my big uh, new watch of the week. What about yourself? Uh, I'm going to start out with a uh, series that I found. I was searching around on Netflix. I, sometimes, you know, when, on those streaming services, you don't quite see everything when you browse. And there's always some blind spots that, you're, that you think you're missing. And uh, so I went searching on Netflix for something that I was missing in the horror genre. And what I found was Chambers. A good portion of the cast is Native American. A big part of my bloodline is Native American, so that's interesting oh, cool. to know. And it's uh, set <coughs> near a reg- uh, reservation. It's set in a mystic New Age pocket of Arizona. It also stars Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn, which is Uma why... Uma Thurman? Yeah, but between the diversity of the cast... And, and Uma Howard. Thurman and Tony Goldwyn being in it, I just had to had to watch it. Wait, and I've never heard of this. Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn play the parents of a girl who has died, and the star How of the show, of the star of the show played by Sivan Elira Rose, she's a, a Native American Apache, and she's the first Native American actress to star in a Netflix series. The daughter of Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn dies, and you see this uh, Native American girl. She's got a very nice boyfriend, and they decide that, that uh, they're both going to lose their virginity. So she has a heart attack when they try to have sex. So she ends up waking up with a transplanted heart in her, and it's the heart of the daughter of Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn. So they come around, and they're vaguely creepy. They're very sad. They can barely get through two sentences without tears coming out of their eyes. They do stuff like they go to hug this girl, and they feel her heartbeat, and they just start crying. And this understandably freaks this girl out. I like how patient it is, because in the first two episodes, you see barely any hints of horror. Eventually, she starts to assimilate and, and starts to take on different, different characteristics of this girl, which happens to be a white girl, like a, a privileged, rich white girl. <laughs> And uh, so, does it use uh, some of this to comment on? Is there a little social commentary thrown into it? Yeah, and and it seems like it's it's going to get more and more into it. It seems like a inverse Get Out type of uh, situation. Um, situation, yeah. Apparently, the the parents are going to get even more creepy, and there's going to be some kind of uh, sinister old, thing going on. How here. old is this show? Just came out in April, and it's already disappeared. So, I, like, I had to search for it. I had to act- actively search for it. How did some t- a Netflix horror show starring Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn, consisting of a primarily Native American cast, slip under the radar, is my question. Especially with big stars like that. How is it not, like, a, a bigger thing or more known? I'm guessing it's not renewed for a second season? Uh, not yet, but uh, I did read some uh, reviews on it, mm-hmm. and... Uh, 
couple of critics said that that it kind of meanders too much and it's too melodramatic. And I can see what they're saying, but I'm really digging it so far. You really believe that these people are who they are. Mm-hmm. And the way it's unfolding, I'm very impressed with. And uh, her uncle, the, the girl's uncle who she stays with, uh, I guess her parents are gone, so she stayed with her uncle. And he's a Native American as well. His name is Marcus Lavoie. Mm-hmm. He's a former uh, policeman. Mm-hmm. Just a big hulking guy, but just a sweetheart who treats her really well. Their relationship is really cool. It really draws you in. Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn come in, and they offer her that they're going to put a a scholarship fund together in their daughter's memory. Mm -hmm. So they decide to give it to this girl with their daughter's heart. So she starts going to this school. It's very like uh, New Age. You sit in study pods. And they, they give you... Study uh, pods? They do yoga and meditation and, <laughs> and the... the I'm sorry, um, I'm not making fun. I'm just... the, the guidance counselor is a little too enlightened. It's kind of uh, almost sappy in a way. So there's something strange going on here, but two episodes in, it's kind of creeping in. I like how, like, like uh, I'm going to go into it later, but uh, I watched Ma, how it got just got too freaky too fast. This is just the opposite. It's just slowly showing little bits of freakiness, but not enough to make anybody... I like when, when movies and TV shows do that. They take their time to like really draw you in very, very slowly, inch by inch before, bam, and hitting you with all the horror like that. So many people who put together a horror series think that they need to present you with the horror on the first episode and pull you in. It didn't seem like a pilot episode. It seemed they, they approached this... And they want to carefully tell this story from beginning to end instead of jumping in with a pilot episode that has to grab you and hit you, you know? But right now I'm just enjoying this girl's life. It has a cool atmosphere to it because it's in the desert. So like the, the first night she goes over to uh, Uma and Tony Goldman's uh, house, it's like this big fancy house, there's a dust storm looming. So you constantly hear this wind whipping around outside and everything kind of, it goes from moonlight to like brownish dark and you see the the dust cloud coming. So just that constant backdrop and plus it being on, a you know, uh, the new age mysticism of, of Native Americans and being near a reservation and all that and their customs. And all. So it's just really interesting on, on many levels and I can't wait to watch the rest of it. So I'll... I'll uh, keep you guys posted on how it is as the uh, series you, you progresses. You keep us posted on that, and I'll keep you posted on Swamp Thing. Horror show exclusive. I did my horror homework. I watched Happy Birthday to Me, the film that you asked me to watch. Cool. What did you the think about it? The slasher from 1981, and I really liked it. It was a really fun slasher movie, and I thought it had some of the most creative original kills I've seen in a slasher film, yes. particularly one that takes place in a weight room. Which is yeah. one of the most oddest kill scenes I've ever seen. I honestly say that is a kill scene I've never seen before. I mean, we've seen weight room horror like in one of the Final Destinations, or like yeah. that. it's not what you think it is, where something just accidentally falls onto somebody. It's a very weird, protracted scene. Yeah, it's hard to describe. I like the mystery aspect of it. I think it keeps you in the dark. There's a vaguely sci-fi element going on in the background, too, with some of the flashbacks. Uh, I'm not going to reveal the twist at the end, but the twist is pretty unexpected. Kind of came a little bit out of nowhere, because I'm not sure that the movie like hinted at that, but it does definitely keep you off of your toes. And all of the kills are really well executed, and it's atmospheric. 
the characters are a little bit more drawn out than your average 80s slasher film. They're a little bit more, I don't know, there's a little bit more layers to each character than there usually are in these types of slasher films. And, and it came out around the same time as Friday the 13th. And I've always thought that the kills are better, the story's better, the acting's better, the characters it's are better, everything's better about it. It's definitely a more creative film. It's more well acted, and it's better shot, too, as a piece of filmmaking. It's a, it's quite a it's quite a sight more impressive. Yeah. And it's it's pretty nasty without being overly nasty. I don't know how to dis- how to say it, where it's like a mean little slasher flick. Yeah. But I've seen ones that are far more sadistic and not nearly as effective. Like with some hardcore kills. Yeah, with some of the hardcore kills. creative, too. <laughs> the flashback scenes are kind of funny because it kind of skewers like how the people who think highly of themselves yeah. are part of societies or tea and, cr- tea and crumpet type of people or elitists, as you might call them. Yeah. Right? It kind of skewers that type of world. is pretty interesting. And how great was the star of it? Oh, I, she was really good. I remember I really liked it back then because I kind of had a crush on her. She played the older sister on Little House on the Prairie. She she played Laura Ingalls' older sister. That's so weird to go from Little House on the <laughs> Prairie to Happy Birthday to me. Especially one as harsh as that. When the ending rolled around, I realized that I'd seen part of this movie a long time ago on a documentary about slasher films, and I recognized the ending and it's a pretty, I'm not going to say what it is, but the ending has a pretty macabre little setup that's really creepy and very yeah. original and really, I, I don't know, I thought it was pretty cool the way that the, they set up that scene at the, the end. Pan out the pan classic. out? classic. I really liked it. I dug this one. It's definitely, it's better than um, Slumber Party Massacre, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> a lot and more it, creative than that. And apparently it was much better than your last horror homework assignment. Was, I liked uh, it my last New course. Kids, right? Yeah, I liked the New Kids. Oh, no, I gave you a bad one before that. You're uh, talking about My Soul to Take. My Soul to Take, that yeah. Wes Craven <laughs> one. You're mean. I don't like saying negative things about Wes Craven, so yeah. I don't know why you made me watch that. I made one out of my way to, in- to avoid it. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to it study. It is interesting to study, that's for sure. I know what not to do when yeah. I try to make a film. In a much different sure. way than Happy Birthday to Me, that's yeah. for sure. I really liked it, and I'm glad you gave me something in the realm. You, you knew that was one of my blind spots, so I'm yeah. trying to catch up on all the 80s. Or like, And I've seen a ton of 80s horror films, but I still feel, every time I see some, I feel like, fuck, there's like so many that I still haven't seen. That I, and that was early on in the in the slasher craze. This isn't like deep into it. This is when they were still learning to capitalize off of it. I think that's one of them that set the tone for 80 slashers. I think a lot of slashers after that tried to reach that level, and a lot of them failed, but there, there are a few good ones, great uh, 80 slashers as well. And a lot of them are Canadian. Yeah, I noticed like that Like that, because uh, that's a Canadian film, and so is Prom Night, and even, I think, wasn't a Sleepaway Camp Oh, it was Canadian, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. A lot of the slasher films in the, mo- in the 80s were Canadian, so Canada really got in on that boom. Yeah. So that was a pretty good one. I enjoyed it. Cool. I'm glad you liked that one. I went to the theater to see Ma, starring Octavia, Octavia Spencer. Spencer. It's directed by Tate Taylor. The Help. Yeah, he, he directed The Help and Get On Up, which both starred, oh, well, co-starred uh, Octavia Spencer. He <clears throat> got the hankering to do something... Quote, I want to do something fucked up. And he was... You think he, he got tired of making those very... I mean, I like The Help a lot, but it yeah. definitely falls under the category of really nice films, politically correct films. Yeah. Come from. Imagine he's like, I want to break out of that. I want to do something a little more fucked. Yeah, so the, this, the conception of this movie came along when, when uh, he started feeling like he wanted to do something fucked up, and he was talking to Octavia Spencer, 
who was feeling a little bit disillusioned and feeling like I'm get I get tired of playing the same character in a supporting role. One of these days I wanted to star in a in a film. Nice. He had this idea for this for uh for Ma. Actually what it was is he just wanted to do something fucked up. So he went to Jason Bloom's office and I guess he's uh, acquaintances. He's kind of friends with uh Jason Bloom. So he just walked up into into his office and he said I want to do something fucked up. So he handed Let's him make a, a horror movie. Yeah, so he handed him a script that he had just bought. It was from writer Scotty Landis, who wrote for Workaholics. That's the the, the most uh, uh, prestigious thing he's done. It's a pretty funny show. Yeah, it's a really funny show. So he had just sold this to Bloomhouse. So Bloomhouse, uh, Jason Bloom says, I got something fucked up right here. So he called up uh, Octavia Spencer. It was originally supposed to be a white woman mm-hmm. in the lead part. But he immediately thought about what Octavia told him, that she wanted a starring role. So he called her up on the phone. And, and she's, she's always playing... She's such a phenomenal actress, and she always gets saddled with playing these sweet, lovable characters yeah. who are always there to support the main character and puff them up and make them feel good. She never gets to shine. Yeah. So I'm glad that she got a lead role. Not only that, one that breaks her career trajectory, a nasty lead role, a yeah. mean lead role, a villain. And, and she had actually took the part before she even read the script. That's how, that's how desperate that she was to break out of that cycle, I imagine. Yeah. And uh, as you may have guessed, it's the best thing about Ma Octavia. is Octavia Spencer. Oh, it's, she's such a great actress that, I, like, I haven't seen it yet, but if nothing else, I would have been shocked if her performance was nothing less than stellar. Yeah, and and uh, her performance was better than most things around her. Um, another great performance in it was Juliette Lewis, who played the young girl's mom. Mm-hmm. And she was a great mom character. Uh, she really seemed like a mom. She seemed like this girl's mom, and that girl seemed like her daughter. So the whole mother-daughter story and her being the concerned mother, who, who she went to high school with Octavia Spencer's. Character. So there's character, so there's kind of a connection. You might, uh, for uh, audience members who don't who might not uh, be a, be as familiar with it, you want to give a, just explain a little bit of what the premise for this movie is. Yeah, uh, Octavia Spencer plays a um, like a middle aged, uh, like an aging, lonely old woman mm-hmm. uh, who lives in this house, and it's set in Mississippi. So it's like small this, town. yeah. So it's a small town group of kids who keeps going to the liquor, who keep going to the liquor store trying to get people to buy stuff for buy liquor for them, but they won't. So they finally get Ma to do it. So Ma starts inviting them down to her basement to party, and like I said before, things get too weird too quick where those kids would have been out the door. And mm-hmm. I've I've heard uh, some people say that that the kids weren't believable that they wouldn't have done something like this. But I, I lived in a small town for quite a few years. I would have went to some old lady's house and partied in her basement. Yeah, and even when she, if she, it, I've I've actually uh, lived with an old lady. Those old lady that I was renting a house from, and uh, so I would have totally w- went down in this old lady's basement, even if she got weird. Because okay, so what's believable is that they would go there, but what's not believable is that they would continue going back after a bunch of fucked up shit keeps happening. Yeah, she, she goes too far, and then there's. There's a lot of concentration on these main characters, which Octavia Spencer and Juliette Lewis, but it, it concentrates a lot on that and then on those characters, and then it spreads out to the other characters, and you kind of feel like you get to know them, and then the director has them make idiotic decisions where you kind of you kind of lose sight of who those characters are. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, uh, this character's doing dumb shit that 
that does not this seems out of character for them. You know, it seems like uh, the situations were too convenient to put the horror into. Okay. And that's what I've noticed from from uh, directors who predom- predominantly do other genres and they come to horror. They think they need to do something outrageous or something convoluted in order to get to the horror. But you can be real with it. It take it's a little harder to plan and it's a little harder to get the intricacies of it. But you can make it believable and still br- and still let the horror rise out of the situation. But this one is too too uh, too many convenient things happening and convoluted things happening to get to the horror. But overall, would you say it was an entertaining film or was it decent or? Uh, it was entertaining enough because of Octavia Spencer and the some uh, of the performances. Yeah, the performance like uh, Diane Silvers. It's a uh, Diana Silvers is the young actress who plays Juliet Lewis's daughter. She was very good in it. Like stuff like Allison um, Janney's in this too. Yeah, she had a a supporting role, but she's always good. She's a favorite of that director as well. So it's definitely worth a watch to see the performances from Octavia Spencer and Juliet Lewis. It's um. Approaches the mediocre level to me. Okay, what about the kill scenes? They were pretty hardcore. They and were? It, they, yeah, they, they were a little hardcore, more hardcore than I expected. See, that that's that's what, what interests me, because you said he wanted to do, fucked, he wanted to do something fucked up. Yeah. Uh, filmmakers like uh, Tate Taylor, who usually, um, you know, who usually market in more melodramatic films yeah. or like message movies... When they go and try to make horror, it's usually a little bit softer and it's not something. So did he act? He actually tried to make the like it, a fucked up kill scenes. Like yeah. they're not light or they're unmistakably horror and they're harsh. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. And the, the movie that surrounded mm-hmm. these kills seemed different. Like the like these type of kills seemed out of place for what this movie was. But does it make it seem shocking when they actually? Yeah. Happen? Exactly. It it does make them make the kills more shocking. Okay. Because you don't expect it to go that hardcore. Yeah. And the fact you're seeing these kills being carried out by this lovable lady that you've adored for so long. Does she sell you that she's a a little loony? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Watching the trailer, I got kind of um, misery vibes off of it. She reminded me a little bit of, it seems like you're trying to go for a Kathy Bates type of performance in misery. But she said the horror comes pretty obvious that there's something wrong with her. Yeah. I think that why it might work with Misery is because Kathy Bates initially seems strange, maybe an odd person, but harmless. Yeah. And very slowly, she starts to seem a little bit more fucked up as it goes along. You're like, for a while, you could see like, okay, maybe she's just weird. I can go until it gets weird. Maybe I could let that slide or pass until it gets to a certain point yeah. where it's just like, oh, no, this woman is batshit insane. Yeah. And that's this an- goes, goes to it faster, you're saying. And yeah, and that's another example, Misery, of a movie where it was a director who had done predominantly drama and comedy, mm-hmm. and then he dipped into horror, and when he dipped into horror, he knew that he didn't have to, to reach that place in a convoluted way. He knew that he didn't have to do anything it, unrealistic or outrageous fairness, to reach that have... horror. Stephen King as a backbone. That's true. That also is always something that's going to help you to have such a strong storyteller. Exactly. Be the basis for your film. I mean, it's Stephen King. Yeah. If if you're not a horror guy, and you're gonna you're gonna try to do horror, Get it horror. better be a strong story, and it better be a really good script. Okay. I mean, it was a decent script, but. Do you think that if they had like approached it at a little more like you know misery, if the horror started seeping in a little slower, do you think it could have been more effective? Yeah. 
But is there, like, you see potential in it? Like, what, yeah. Okay, okay. And the, the story could have been crafted a little better. Like I said, it, it seemed to abandon certain characters. Like, you'd get, you'd get to know certain you, characters and then... You don't sound like you're overly harsh on this or disappointed. That's the only reason I'm asking, because you're describing some of its flaws and describing a lot of what you liked. Yeah. And you don't really seem to be, like, too, like, oh, this was bad or anything like that. Yeah, it was it was a somewhat of a fun watch, yeah. So I is mean, it worth, like, worth a rent or worth a stream if you were to see it playing or something? Just check it out. Yeah, definitely. It's it's worth it to see it just for the kills, Octavia Spencer and Juliette Lewis. Other than that, you can just, uh, you know, it isn't bad at all. All right. But it isn't great, so. Could have been better. Yeah, definitely. All right. You never know, maybe Tate Taylor will do another horror film. And with his experience under his under his belt, he could maybe do it a little bit more organically the next time. And I'm speaking from point, like I said, I haven't seen it, so I have no opinion to form on it yet. Yeah, the, the critics' consensus <laughs> is unanimous that it took a, a good concept and a good performance by the lead actress and kind of just squandered it a bit, mm-hmm. like didn't take it to the lengths that he should have. As far as the storytelling, if, if the storytelling was as strong as the uh, kills, then you would have had a great movie. On the other hand, it was a financially a success. It's a modestly budget film. It's not big, but on opening weekend, it made like eighteen million. It was made for six million. Yeah. So it's tripled its budget on the first weekend. So it didn't like. So it looked like it was a success for the studio overall. And like you said, I, I would like to see him do another horror film. To see how I th- he does. I think it. this one had potential. Uh, he he just needs to be a little more realistic next time. So what else did you see? Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and Happy Birthday to Me are my only uh, first-time watches. I did watch three films that I've already seen before, um, class, uh, classics. I saw them with a mixture of uh, some friends and, a, co- and uh, a couple of my cousins. We watched a double feature of The Exorcist and The Last House on the Left. And The Exorcist wasn't my idea. I've seen it a million times, and I always love it. It's always fun. So we watched that first. I don't really have uh, too much to comment on it because I've seen it so many times and the 100th viewing didn't make a difference, didn't like, uh, reveal anything new. But it was, a, it was a fun experience. When it was over, they were looking for something else to watch, something, you know, something in the same vein, another horror movie. And I was thinking, mm, I got something for you. So I put on the original The Last House on the Left, Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left. Yeah. And it was really interesting because... The Exorcist, for how fucked up it actually is, I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's by no means soft. It's an, one of the greatest horror films of all time, films of all time, total classic. And obviously, it's wrong by, with having a little girl stabbing her vagina with a crucifix yeah. and screaming obscenities and blasphemies is disturbing and wrong. But after I put The Last House on the left on, The Exorcist seemed a little bit lighthearted, and I noticed it kind of sucked the fun out of the room for a little bit. Yeah. Nobody was expecting the movie to be as harsh as it is. It's not quite as harsh as like you would say, uh, Henry portrait of a serial killer, which I saw earlier, but as far as, uh, in traditional, more exploitation films, the last house on the left is one of the roughest that there is. And it's one of the most realistic that there is. It's a horror that really grows out of a situation that could happen. And the idea behind it is horrifying. And it's Wes Craven's first film, complete exploitation movie, rape revenge, where a group of awful people, that's the only way you could describe them, um, lure in a couple of teenagers who are in New York City who are just trying to go to a rock concert. 
they psychologically and mentally fuck with them. They torture them. They make them have sex with each other in a scene that, surprisingly, it's actually, I don't want to say tasteful because tasteful is not the right word for an exploitation movie. Yeah. But they do have a scene where all the killers uh, have these two poor girls strip naked and have sex with each other. And you don't see it actually happen, but seeing the fear on, there's one girl who's stronger than the other and seeing the other one crying and her comfort, it's okay, it's okay, we're going to get this just together. It's so heartbreaking and so realistic and so sad that you feel like you're just watching these events unfolding and it's just really harsh. And I could sense everybody in the room just went quiet and I could sense this like sense of uh, tension in the room when this was happening, when they rape and do what they do to the girls. And then when they end up later at the, the house of the, of the girl, one of the girls that they were messing with, the parents find out and they exact their own revenge and it's ugly. It's yeah. satisfying. I don't know how to describe it because you feel like they deserve what they've done. And while it's happening, you find yourself cheering it on. But as soon as it's over, you feel sad because the parents were these really sweet, sweet, lovable people who are really innocent. Yeah. And now their daughter, well, I mean, spoiler, whatever. Their daughter's gone. She was brutally taken from them. And then they became sadistic murderers by taking the revenge on the people who did this, which is rightfully so. When they sit down on the couch at the end and they look down on the floor, there's like this profound sense of sadness that I get off of knowing that what they just did is ugly, justified or not. It was ugly. And they know that these really sweet, innocent people who you've seen throughout the movie portrayed as just the nicest couple are never going to be the same again. It's about how violence has touched their life in a way. And I think for all of its exploitation, it deals with violence in a way that's realistic and makes you examine the implications of violence and what it does to one's soul and the type of toll it takes on a person. And when it was over, everybody was looking around. I was like, that was fucked up. That movie was so wrong. It was so fucked up. And I was like, yeah, pretty effective. So... Rewatching that, The Last House on the Left for me has lost none of its power. Yeah. And the tagline, it's only a movie, it's only a movie, it's only a movie, it still applies. I, yeah. I think and because another one the, that's very hard to watch. Yeah, because... It's not fun. No, it's not fun. It's a harsh subject matter. There's a couple of goofy moments sandwiched in between some of the harsher scenes that kind of like break the tension a little bit. Yeah. But not enough to make you feel that you just saw was a pleasant experience. Definitely one of the better of the early 70s exploitation films and a highlight of Wes Craven's career. And, and I was glad to show it to a few people how The Exorcist, I mean, probably because we've all seen it, they've all seen it before, I could see a stark contrast yeah. that this movie is got under their skins to a much greater extent. And I don't think they expected it to be that realistic either. That's one where I love the remake as well. The and remake it, is actually really good. It just so happens to have Tony Goldwin as yeah, one, of, Tony one Goldwin. of the parents. I just yeah. watched in uh, Chambers. The other one I rewatched was with uh, another couple of friends was uh, The People Under the Stairs. Yeah. And uh, we discussed it on the podcast a, a few weeks ago when we were doing our top uh, our list of the top 20 uh, horror movies of the 1990s, our own respective lists. And it still holds up. I feel like it deserved its spot. And the things about it's changed. It's suspenseful. It's funny. It's genuinely scary at times. It's a little campy here and there. It's got some social commentary going on. The little kid is very charming as the main character. Uh, Above all, it's original. I've never seen anything like People Under the Stairs. No, not at all. Um, The 
um, you get to see a young Ving Rhames. The couple who are based on, I mentioned it on the podcast before, that they were based on Nancy and Ronald Reagan, and it's yeah. such a fucking fucked up satire of those two characters, how they're outwardly very religious and inwardly rotten, nasty people that steal from the neighborhood and suck the wealth out of, they just basically suck the wealth out of the ghetto and keep it all at all for themselves. That one was a fun one. Not too much hilarious, I talked about it, but still holds up, and I think it deserved the spots that it had on our list for the top 20 films of the ninth horror films of the 1990s. And even though it was from the same director as Last House on the Left, it's a lot oh, more fun. That's another thing, too. <laughs> One of the people that uh, the I saw with a couple, not as many, a couple of the same friends, though not all of the same people were there for people under the stairs. They had seen The Last House on the Left and like, wow, Wes Craven had quite a mind because those horror movies were like nothing. They're worlds apart They're, yeah. as, as horror films. The Last House on the Left and the people under... In, I, so, so much so that when I was talking about them right now, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that they're both Wes Craven films until yeah. you actually pointed it out right now. They are so worlds apart, and neither one of them is like Scream, and neither is like no, or like A Nightmare on Elm Street. Street yeah. And I noticed, I did think about when I was watching, I was like, wow, Wes Craven was uh, such a talented filmmaker is that... I don't think he had a particular style that he stuck to that was very identifiable. No. The only thing that was consistent is that they all resided in the horror genre, but they're different spheres of horror. None of them are the same. The two most similar ones, I'd say, are The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. Those two seem like they could have came from the same mind or they fall into the same sphere of the hardcore and they were both, both early Craven, too. Early Wes Craven, the yeah. exploit 70s exploitation horror. The Serpent and the Rainbow, that's another yeah. one that's not that's nothing like it. So oh, Wes Craven was a pretty versatile filmmaker, despite mainly working in one genre. Yeah. He never repeated himself, or he never made the same type of horror movie over and over again. It was always able to be fresh. He's one of those horror filmmakers who's capable of giving you really just fun horror movies that are a blast to watch. Yeah. And giving you ones that are really hard to sit through and make you feel shaken when you're over. A Scream was the only one that he repeated, right? Yeah. He'd done multiple sequels. And I imagine the only reason he did is because he wasn't a fan of, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street sequels and all the directions it went in. I'm sure he didn't want anybody fucking that franchise up. Yeah. So he probably felt a responsibility that if they're going to make another one, I have to be the one that does it because I can't allow this to fall under bad hands again. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Ghost Man and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. I watched uh, two films for the first time, one new one and one old one. And what's interesting about these two and the reason why I'm mentioning them together is they're both they're both objectively bad movies. Poorly made, but I hated one and I love the other. That's an interesting dichotomy. I'm really searching a lot lately, wondering what my line is, because I do like B movies, I do love exploitation movies, things that are deliberately bad, mm-hmm. but sometimes bad movies just get under my skin. Like for instance, Death House. Mm-hmm. From 2017, it's based on a story by Gunnar Hansen. It was billed as it was billed as the Expendables of Horror. My theory is I, I'm not sure if I'm correct on this or not, but I believe this movie might have thwarted Bruce Campbell's plans to make it Expendables of Horror. For years, he tried to get it Expendables of Horror made, and from what I hear, it was almost made until people got wind of this one coming out, Death House. So it would have been like Ash fighting Freddy Krueger and yeah. Jason Voorhees, like he does in the comics. Yeah. This one, uh, it has the actors, you know, a, bu- a bunch of uh, iconic horror actors, 
but they're not playing their original characters. The, the premise is an FBI agent, played by Courtney Palm from Zombievers, okay. goes to this maximum security prison where it's like a prison and a lab where they take these the most evil prisoners, the most evil killers ever incarcerated, put them, put them in one place, and they ex- do experiments on them to try to extract the evil out of them. One of the tactics that they use is taking poor people and giving them to the the killers as victims so they could study their behavior. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a silly kind of thing. But it's it's a decent premise that could have been done a lot better, but it was just the most convoluted mess I've probably ever seen. It was probably like a 200-page script. Every character was just blah, 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 just all this technical jargon and, and all And you know this... what? Everything I've heard about this movie is like from every source, everywhere, from sources I tr- both trust and don't trust, have universally rained down and called it trash. Yeah. I've heard nothing positive about this movie yet. Another thing about this movie, and I'm, I've been torn a lot lately because sometimes, you know, uh, a lot of horror fans like boobs and blood. In a movie, they oh, like, we all like, we all like them because it's like nudity horror yeah. and stuff like that. It's and there's of... there's times when a nudity is fun, it's titillating, and there's times where it's just nasty and it almost pisses you off. Courtney Palm comes in, a beautiful girl. She's an FBI agent transplanted into a prison, right? So you think, okay, they're not going to find a reason to get this girl naked in this movie, but they sure do. And you know what the reason is? She goes into the prison with this male FBI agent. They don't know each other. They were just kind of paired there to look over these experiments. So Barbara Crampton is one of the scientists, and she tells them to go on a break. So their break is to go take a shower together. So they're in this tiny prison shower, nude, having a mundane conversation about their assignment at this prison. So it doesn't even have, like, a reason to be there. Yeah, and it lingers up up and down both of their bodies. Does it seem like it's done in an ironic way or a way that's calling a callback to the 80s slashers? Not at all. No? This movie is Does, overly serious. Does it seem serious. like it's aware? Yeah, no. Okay. It's overly serious, and the, the times where you can tell it's trying to be cheeky just fall flat. It was just a, a convoluted script that was just went on and on, and you didn't even understand half of it. Listen to this cast, though. Courtney Palm, of course. You got Kane Hodder, who played Jason. A Tony legend. Todd. Another legend. Bill Mosley. Oh, Adrian Barbeau from The Fog. Adrian Barbeau. Also the voice of Catwoman on Batman the Animated yeah. Series. Debbie Roshan from uh, Tromeo and Juliet and about 150 other horror films. Dee Wallace from Cujo. Barbara Crampton from, from Beyond and Reanimator and all those other movies. Michael Berryman from Hills Have Eyes, the mutated uh, guy from Hills Have Eyes. Lloyd Kaufman from Trauma. Uh, Trauma. Sid Haig, the great Sid Haig. Brink Stevens, another B-movie favorite. <laughs> Tiffany Shepis, another B-movie favorite. Felissa Rose from Sleepaway Camp. Jesus. Sean Whalen from P- uh, People Under the Stairs, the squirrely-looking guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Apparently, I was looking Wait, up the... This sounds like a who's who yeah. of the horror industry. And that's that cast list reads phenomenally, though. Like, if you're a yeah, horror fan, exactly. if you're a horror fan making a horror movie, and to get all these people and and all these cast members in one film, that would be like a fucking dream come true. Yeah. And how this, it, it's almost it's a it's a beginning director. I don't even know what his name is. I'm, like Sean Whalen from People Under the Stairs. I was looking at the cast list, and he plays Satan. 
They're like, what? I, I had no idea that was Satan. That, that was supposed to be Satan. It was just completely nonsense. And uh, it also had Tony Moran, who played Michael Myers. It was just a bloated cast, bloated everything. It was terrible. So it was a waste of a good cast. Yeah. It's too bad. But well, I'm going to, I think I trust you on this one because I haven't heard a single good thing about it yet. No, it's just savagely bad. Okay. Now, another, the other one that's objectively bad and poorly made, but I really enjoyed it, was Blood Harvest from 1987. And I don't think I enjoyed it just because I watched it with Joe Bob Briggs, because he does make bad movies a lot more entertaining than they already are. For clarification, Joe Bob Briggs hosts a show on Shudder, and he breaks, uh, you watch horror movies with him, and it, the movie plays, but in between it'll stop, and he'll break down some of the scenes, give you information about the cast, Yeah. and the man is a scholar when it comes to ho- horror films. He's college educated, and he takes the most scholarly, scholarly, thorough, analytical approach to Every type of horror film, from like the really high quality ones to the trashy B ones, he sees the uh, the art behind the trash, and he nobody he disp- he possesses such an amazing wealth of knowledge about horror and the horror genre, and he's always fascinating to listen to and watch a movie with, even when the movie isn't as, isn't that good. Yeah, and and he loves the bad ones just as much as he loves the good ones. Like this one, he ate it up. This is a, actually the second time that he hosted it. He hosted Blood Harvest back in April of 94, mm-hmm. and it was cool. The biographer of Tiny Tim, this is a movie that stars Tiny Tim as a, a creepy clown. Okay. And this was Tiny Tim's first and only movie he was ever in. <laughs> they show his biographer showing Joe Bob a videotape of Tiny Tim in 1994 watching Joe Bob watch his movie and comment on it. How uh, meta. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe Bob had a meta moment. Where he was, uh, he was watching Tiny Tim watch him. him watch, <laughs> watch him. <laughs> it was, like I said, objectively poorly made, and even Joe Bob comments that it that it plays like it was written by someone who didn't know how to write a script and directed by someone who didn't know how to direct a movie. But it was still fun. Yeah, and direct and uh, starring one of the main stars is Tiny Tim, who can't act. He, he can't even in, interact with other characters, so most of, most of his scenes he's by himself doing soliloquies or singing. So it opens up with him singing in the clown makeup. There's another scene where he's crying and singing, and he starts saying, Oh, my parents, just to show that he's depressed over his parents. It was just so ludicrous and so outrageous that you just have you can't look away. And it also has this beautiful actress, Atonia Salchek. It was her first and last film. And watching it, I see why. They get her nude, full frontal nudity, through half the film. There's guys groping all over her for no good reason. So the story doesn't even justify it. No. There's one particular scene I have to tell you about is when uh, she has this childhood friend. So, So basically the premise is this girl goes away to college and she comes back to her hometown afterwards, after college, and uh, she goes back to her old home, and her parents are gone, and the, the home is ransacked. And uh, her childhood friend stays next door, and he his brother is Tiny Tim, so that's where Tiny Tim comes in. He's kind of a crazy guy who runs around with clown makeup. And you think through the whole thing that Tiny Tim's the killer, but it ends up being somebody else. But... Uh, uh, this girl, 
wakes up out of a sound sleep, walks to her refrigerator, opens it up, and it's full of blood, just sloppy with blood everywhere. She screams and freaks out and looks down and realizes she's standing in blood, so she kind of slips and falls down. This guy comes out of nowhere. He takes her in his arms and comforts her, and next thing you know, this childhood friend of hers, who you'd seen uh, kind of protect her throughout the whole movie and kind of be a confidant to her, he takes her into the bathtub, sits in the bathtub with her, turns the shower on, and okay, he's trying to clean her off. Then he opens her shirt, and her boobs are hanging out, and he starts feeling her whole body and feeling her boobs. And then he picks her up, and he dries her off, and he takes her into the couch. He lays her on the couch, and he opens her top back up again, and he starts sucking on her boobs. And for some reason, I guess, I guess just because she was scared by the blood at her refrigerator, she seems all out of it and letting him do this. So he's basically it's taking just, advantage of her. Yeah. So even though that, like, I guess you have a right to portray whatever you want in, in film, you got to remember that you're working with people who are actually acting these scenes out. So if you're seeing in a movie somebody actually sucking on a woman's breast, you're actually seeing somebody suck on a woman's breast. Yeah. You can't pretend like, like that. There's no way around it. I, you say you, this is her first and only film. Yeah. Or... Whether or not the material calls for it or not, I can see how this would be a turnoff or a, a bad experience for an actress and not, not want to do it again to think, oh, if I'm going to be in a film and this is what they're going to do to me every time, strip me nude in front of the camera. And you got to remember, there's a crew of people working on a film. So whenever an actor or actress is nude, they're in front of a large group of people and they're actually being touched when they're being touched and have uh, their mouths on it and people are filming and staring and yeah. possibly leering. So I... You got to remember that these are people that you are working with and you could make a very awkward environments depending on the type of scenarios that you set up when you're making a film. Yeah. And I think it's important to be mindful of a person's personal space or how much. I mean, I guess some people are willing. There are some women who would be willing to do it, but not everyone is. Yeah. And it seems like this girl didn't know she, what she was getting herself into. Yeah. And this was a... a Peter Krause's first movie. He's he's the mm-hmm. dad from the show Parenthood, and I kind of chuckled when I read the the fact that well, uh, Joe Bob said it, and I, I read it as well. Is when Peter Krause had a sex. He plays uh, the girl's boyfriend, so he has a sex scene with her, and I was wondering why he got on top of her doing the motions and everything, and his pants were still on. Apparently, he refused to take his pants off during that sex scene, and I chuckled at first, but then after watching the whole movie, I kind of think. Maybe he was doing that out of respect for her because he's seen what they were putting her through through the rest of it. So he was like, I'm not going to put her through anymore. I'm just going to leave my pants on. <laughs> but I, it, c- I can understand the impulse not to want to yeah. <laughs> contribute to that. But it was so bad. It was But enjoyable. it's entertaining. Yeah, it was entertaining. And, and I'll admit I was tit- titillated by this beautiful girl that I'd never seen before. And it's kind of a one-off thing so she's kind of but it still feels kind of wrong yeah so she's kind of captured in this time of her life you know and i was very conflicted on it because it was totally wrong what they were doing to her but i was slightly titillated so maybe i'm a perv (laughs) (laughs) did you see anything else no that's about it i saw one more thing i won't say too much about it it's the the movie boar b-o-a-r 
from uh, that I watched at the um, Rated R Speakeasy, which we mentioned, you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's an Australian giant boar film. Uh, it was a, a, f- a part of the surprise screening. Um, uh, not much to this film. It's pretty much a cut and dry monster movie about a giant boar who kills people. <laughs> but the the kills were excellent. Uh, there was a um, I like the use of CGI. There was there was some CGI when they had to show this big giant boar move really fast and really attack someone, but the the times that they sparingly used the CGI, I thought was pretty good, and it was all Australian actors and and I think I told you before something about actors in Australia and England when they do bad like uh, B movies like this or or uh, uh, like uh, cheesy little monster movies, they put in good performances where they feel like real people. So I I enjoyed the characters and uh, thought it was a really fun movie and the the practical effects were really good and the the CGI was good, so uh, watch it on Shutter. I yeah. recommend it. I'll we'll check it out. And uh, that's about it for this week's uh, Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show podcast. And, and it's another pretty long one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yes. Uh, we didn't have a topic this week because we were so behind on discussing all of our movies uh, and uh, the, the movies we watched and all and the plethora of news. So next week we're going to discuss what is scary and what has scared us personally in movies and what scares different people and why certain people are more scared by other things uh, by certain types of horror and uh, other people are scared by other types of horror and how the different things that scare us on different levels. Yeah, so tune in next week for that, and we promise we will try not to skip any more weeks. We'll try to keep a podcast going for you guys every Saturday on iTunes and SoundCloud and uh, Apple believe- Music. Apple Music. iTunes is actually yes, they've be- actually separated now. Yeah, so, so it's, they're going to be dead. So, so it's uh, Apple Podcasts and and SoundCloud, and we're going to get on Spotify soon. Yes, so. we're we're eventually going to expand to Spotify and possibly even Patreon. So stick with us and. Uh, Look for details about our variety show on American Horrors every Friday night and about our podcast every Saturday at uh, facebook.com slash Pickles Horror Show and on Instagram at Pickles Horror Show. That's all the time we have today for, for, for today, folks. Happy horror, everyone. Happy horror. Happy horror.